Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Hey, so yeah, welcome to... uh this week's Resolve Riffs. Today, we are excited to host none other than Mike Green alongside your favorite Resolve um, partners and contributors, Mike Philbrick and Richard Latterman. Um, as usual, we'll go through and cheers. Um, we are having um, a lighter day. I think Mike and I uh, bouncing back off of a tequila tasting last night, which, uh, <laughs> which is actually really, really good. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really tried much tequila since my university days, other than sort of in margaritas or what have you. And it was a really pleasant shock, just how, how far tequila has come. It was, it's just remarkable. It's like this gentle sipping drink. And then we got into the, the really nice mezcal, which was even nicer, smokier and, uh, yeah just had this really rich flavor that I wasn't expecting. Uh, so um, I was a little bit worried about today, but I bounced back drinking a, uh, a glass of wine. So keeping it light and tame, but in the spirit of things. And I guess Mike, it's a lot earlier for you, right? So uh, it, it is. So I'm going with the bourbon. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going with your non sequitur alert. Um, this is uh, this is this is my second day in a row drinking at lunch. I had uh, I spent the the um, morning and afternoon with Mark Cahotas and Bill Falkenstein yesterday, and so we had to share or we had to uh, sample some of uh, Mark's legendary rum punch, which is really quite spectacular. That was, uh, that nice. was a nice, along with a, a tri tip that he made that was just unreal. And uh, anyone following me on Twitter can tell that I've been eating product from Mark Cahotis's farm for the past uh, 12 hours now. So I'm a pretty happy camper. Oh, I see. So I'm connecting the dots now on some of those posts about eggs and chickens. Okay. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, cheers, so, guys. Yeah, cheers. 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 Cheers, gentlemen. Here's to a and wonderful riff. Thanks and to as always, for... I will oh, yeah. I will just remind everybody that um, this is for entertainment purposes. And if, if you're looking to pursue investment advice in your portfolio, consult a professional. Uh, this is entirely a free form conversation that could go in many different ways. And uh, consult a local professional for things that might be, apply, be applicable in your portfolio. Because uh, the four scoundrels on this particular show may or may not know what they're talking about. <laughs> a creative disclaimer. I like it. Um, so, Mike, I bet it, this is going to be hard with the mics. So, My- Mikey G, I guess, and Mikey P. I don't know how we're going to do this, but let, yeah, let's, say- let's not do Mikey. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you can call me my lacrosse coach used to say, which is green. You dumb shit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I so will green respond and to dumb shit too, though. So, uh, well, then yeah, we're that's really not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> that's not helpful. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to call you. I'll just call you Michael and, and Mike, Mike, I guess. Perfect. We'll, we'll try that. Yeah. Um, so, Michael, maybe um, I don't want to spend too much time with, with you um, going through your thesis or your sort of, I don't know if you have many theses, but your sort of core thesis in too much detail because I think many people will have already heard m- many of those points, but maybe summarize it. Your First of all, what are you doing now? Um, what, what's your role at Logica? What does Logica do? And what is this sort of core thesis that you guys are 
are playing out and um, let's try and keep that tight. And then I think this is going to go for a while. So I hope you've, you've budgeted a little extra time at the, at, at the tail end of this thing, but maybe start there. Okay, sure. So um, I am the chief strategist and portfolio manager and a partner at Logica Capital mm-hmm. Advisors. Logica uh, at its core is a firm that trades um, what falls into a classification of, of long volatility product. Um, although we actually, our flagship product is what's called an absolute return product. So the uh, Logica absolute return product. And it's very unique within that niche because most absolute return products are running significant short positions, which expose them to high negative skew. The products that we choose to trade put us into a very positive skew framework, right? So in, in some weird ways, we overlap with the you know, more traditional uh, crisis risk type products, but we're trying to deliver a positive return under all market conditions as compared to simply under crisis uh, dynamics. Although that tends to be where we shine as, as all of our products start working together at that point, all the securities that we trade. Um, the... You know what most people know me for at this point is the observations that I've made into the dynamics of passive investing in the markets. Um, I wish I could lay claim that that was 100% de novo and that I came up with it, but I'll be totally frank with you that the vast majority of my insights are actually just taking insights by other people and trying to push them a little bit further. Right, so. I would actually uh, highlight the work um, actually at AQR, which is funny because I, I tend to get into tiffs with Cliff Asnes on a fair basis. Um, <clears throat> you know, Lasse Peterson at, at AQR wrote a brilliant paper a couple of years ago called Sharpening the Arithmetic on Active Management, which challenged the work of Bill Sharp in 1991. It says, you know, something we've all kind of come to accept, uh, which I think is wrong. The idea that it's a zero sum game and that active managers are effectively trading against each other and therefore passive managers by taking the best information that is available from the outcome of that battle between them, right? What we call the current price um, are able to free ride on the system and outperform the average manager because they're able to offer lower fees, do it at lower costs, right? The assumptions that Bill Sharp made in that paper simply don't hold water, right? The, the most obvious one being that passive investors never transact, right? Which means how do you, well, raises the obvious question, how do you get into the market? Well, that has to be magic, right? How do you get out of the market? That has to be magic too, right? Well, um, you know, Brent Johnson at Santiago Capital is a great line. You either believe in magic or you believe in math, right? And I believe in math and I don't think there is any magic and would go a step further from Lasse's work and point out, you know, Lasse's work was focused on the idea that on index rebalancing, passive investors would have to transact and therefore they became active for that period in time. My insight and observation was just very straightforward, which is, well, wait a second, they're transacting every single day because they're receiving flows. And if they're receiving flows, then we can actually begin to model and understand the impact that they have on the market. And when you do that, you discover some really surprising things, which, as you talked about, I've shared broadly and influenced the way that we think about the world at Logica. Yeah, that was a great summary. Um, Mm -hmm. So actually, one of the most surprising um, things that has emerged from your thesis. And this is, if I understand it correctly, I I recall a conversation maybe with Grant Williams where you, um, you described the fact that historically active mutual funds held about 5% cash on average Mm -hmm. um, just to manage uh, withdrawal redemptions and, and um, investment. And that a typical index fund, like the Vanguard Total Market Fund, for example, holds about 0.1% cash. And 
that the migration, so, so an investor sells at the margin, they sell an active mutual fund and they buy a passive index fund. There's a transfer of, you know, that 5% that was held in cash, the vast majority of that now gets deployed into the market. Mm-hmm. And I think you made the rather astonishing claim that, that in theory, if everybody did that, that would result in about a 50 fold increase in market valuations. And I, I was just wondering if you sort of walk us through, and I could have misinterpreted that, but maybe just walk us through the mechanics of that and how you arrived at that general, what the math of that looks like. Sure. So, so the math is actually very straightforward and it can be thought of in two separate frameworks, right? If you create conditions under which somebody values cash, they're willing to hold it as 5% of their portfolio because they need to meet redemptions, they need to um, position themselves to take advantage of opportunities in adverse situations without having to sell securities, right? So that cash on hand becomes valuable in a market drawdown. And you replace it with somebody who effectively views cash as a toxic phenomenon, right? I can't hold cash, right? If I hold cash, I get killed, right? Well, you're willing to pay a lot more for stuff under those conditions if cash becomes a toxic asset, right? Um, if you walk through the simple math of it, right? And um, you know, we have some slides that we share with our investors on this sort of stuff, walking through the very simple mathematics behind it. But you can just think about it in like the simplest form. So let's just imagine a scenario in which there's $1,000 total capital invested into funds, right? And so if we start with 100% active, that means you're going to have $1,000 total, 950 is going to be equities and 50 is going to be cash, right? If you decide that you're going to replace an active manager with a passive manager, so let's take $10 from the active managers and give it to passive managers. When you do that, you're actually taking $10 of cash from the active management community. So they now have $40 in cash, 950 of equities. You're handing that $10 to the passive manager who now has $10 in cash and zero in equities. And the two of them want to rebalance their portfolio, right? By definition, the active managers are going to want to sell $9.50 of securities to get themselves back to 5% cash. <clears throat> the active manager, or the passive managers are going to want to buy $9.99 worth of stock, right? To get themselves to 10 basis points of cash. Well, that's not a market clearing phenomenon. You can't have that. You can't have somebody paying $9.99 and somebody else receiving $9.50. And so you actually have to solve that problem iteratively to understand where that transaction will actually occur. And the astonishing fact is, is when you do that, you discover that on that tiny move, just taking the market from 0% passive to 1% passive, you're going to lead to a more than 1% increase in, in equity prices in order to solve that phenomenon the cash can't change, right? There has to be 50 bucks of cash at the end of it. And suddenly it has to be 4.9% of the market, right? And so when you run through this calculation, that's where you get to the 50X as you take this to its logical conclusion. I see. So that's why you reference Mish, Mish and his assertion that there's no such thing as cash on the sidelines, that the cash needs to net. Correct. But the market also needs to clear. And so Correct. that's why you get this amplification mechanism on the price vector, because Correct. that's the only way that that, 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 that transaction can clear. Okay. Correct. Okay. That makes sense. It, 
43%, I think is the, Adam, we were talking about this earlier, 43% of equity holdings are now held in passive uh, vehicles. How much of that move do you estimate may have already occurred, Mike? Michael? Well, I, so I'm a little confused by what you mean in terms of the, the 50X increase. Yes, correct. About, about 2.3X, right? So, you know, if, if I'm right, we've got another give or take 20X to go. So it's an accelerating phenomenon. It, it, right? it absolutely There's, is. And you can think about it in the extreme, to that. right? Just think about it in the extreme version, right? You're 99% passive. How do you get that last 1% active manager who's huddled through this whole process, right? How do you get him to sell to you? Right. You just, and, and he knows the minute he sells, he's out, right? He can't get back in because you'll never sell to him again. Right. So what's the price at which that clears? And the answer is the mark on that that last component, the market goes up 10x. And isn't isn't that what we observe in 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 bubble phenomena phenomenon 100%. generally? Right. Yeah. You, you no, see that right. intensification all the way up the chain until such time as that last dollar flows in. Now, I guess the, the big question is how do you determine when we get to the last dollar? Is it in fact require a hundred percent shift to passive or does it occur at some point before that? Are there ebbs and flows along the way? I'm sure there are. The the problem is, is that alongside that shift, you have an increase in volatility, right? And volatility can effectively be thought of as your speed on the highway, right? So, you know, you're cruising along at 55 miles an hour on an uncrowded highway. Your odds of an accident are pretty low. Take it to 65, they go up. 75, they go up, right? 100 miles an hour, man, you're starting to get a little sketchy here. Just to put it in perspective, like if you think about volatility as a function of that same type of multiple, by the time you get to around 90% passive, you're traveling at 400 miles an hour on the, on the freeway, right? Like you're going to have an accident. And so I, I don't actually think we're going to get there. The question is just, is the accident so bad that we don't have capital markets anymore? And I think there's a very real risk of that. Are you yeah, able so to? It's a state of criticality more than it is, you know, anticipating exactly when that threshold is. It's sort of identifying that there is an accelerating state of criticality, and that we need to be increasingly prepared for. It, it's that. Exact, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And so that's part of. I mean, you know, people ask us from a professional standpoint, like, well, when is this going to happen? And I got to tell you, well, first of all, if I knew exactly when it was going to happen, I wouldn't tell you. Right. And secondly, if I knew exactly when it would happen and I knew, like if I knew in either direction, I wouldn't bother putting on the positions that we have at Logico, which, which by and large are straddles. Right. So our, Mm -hmm. our objective is to put on a straddle and say, we don't know which way the market's going to go. We just don't want to pay the penalty associated with that indecision. Right. So we're going to use everything in our power to express that straddle in a way that we can carry it positively for our investors. Right. And, um, and so the straddle is a function of <clears throat> positioning for the, the skew, but avoiding sort of that consistent negative drift. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, my complaint against the traditional long vault type product, right. Is, is that it has some, you know, the marketing pitch is some variant of, we promise you that we're, you know, yes, we're going to lose money every single year, but we promise you in, in, in you know, over the course of 10 years, you'll be really happy, right? Well, I've been doing this closing in on 30 years now, right? And I can assure you that if I'd ever entered into a nine-year time period where I lost money nine years in a row, I still wouldn't be doing this, right? It's just, it's not, 
it's not an honest expectation to turn to anyone, particularly a CIO, and say, you should incur behavior that's going to subtract 2 to 3% from your return on any given year. But boy, I, sh- I assure you in that 10th year, it's going to really pay off, right? And one of the interesting phenomena for us actually has been the very positive feedback that we've gotten in the aftermath of the March events, where some people in the long vol space, you know, reported 4,000% returns in, in March, right? And, you know, the vitriol that that, that that engendered amongst their client base, right? Like, that is absolute garbage. That's just not true, right? It was really interesting. So, you know, I, I the, the knock on long vol, I think, is deserved, right? You can't expect people to lose money on a continuous basis to protect your portfolio. Right. And so you're yeah. trying to capture both tails, not just the, the left tail. And then you're also subsidizing that potential negative carry with a basically a long equity overlay, right? But with specific it's, characteristics. It, it, yeah, specific characteristics. So it's not long equity. It's actually long options, right? So so um, Wayne and I talk about this on a regular basis. And it's one of these weird dynamics, right? We're, we People will reach out to us and they'll say, well, how do you... And, you know, how do you handle an environment in which the VIX is really high, right? Or the VIX is in backwardation, right? And they're like, well, we don't actually trade VIX, right? So I could actually care less. Um, you know, many of the features of the term structure that you see in the VIX are a byproduct of what's actually called a, a correlation uh, 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 convexity, a correlation uh, coefficient is actually what it's called, I'm sorry, that highlights the dynamics that, you know, you have higher certainty about the behavior of the market in the short term, less certainty about it in the longer term. And so you have a fairly steepward, upward sloping uh, curve in volatility that doesn't really exist in single stock space, right? It's not the same. The skew dynamics, again, that you see in terms of the indices, those are largely a byproduct of an expectation of higher correlation as you move to the tails, right? And so, there's penalties associated with that, that that we take advantage of. We think that, you know, it's funny you talk about the tails. Like we actually focus more on what I would describe as the shoulders, right? We, we think the shoulders are a lot cheaper. And actually, ironically, many of our competitors that are classified as long vol will sell the shoulders to finance the tails. While we would never sell volatility because that's contrathesis, we look at selling those shoulders as wrong. Right. We just think that we, we think that you're actually selling the cheapest part of the market. So speaking of the cheapest part of the market, um, I did want to give you an opportunity to chat about your fairly recent uh, article series on value investing. Yeah. Um, so maybe just state the general thesis there. And I've got a couple of, of general questions maybe that might, that might flow from that, but I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, series of papers. And, and um, so, you know, it's worth exploring. So what are you trying to say? Well, in really simple terms, what we're actually saying is, is that systematic value is distinct from, you know, the individual stock picker who's going and finding, you know, the undiscovered gem that is just waiting to be picked up by, you know, Wall Street, right, or revalued by Wall Street more accurately. But systematic value investing, where in simplest form, you're buying the cheapest third of the market, selling the most expensive third of the market, and counting on the forces of mean reversion to generate a source of alpha or excess return relative to the market, like that's just a short vol trade, 
right? And that's really what that whole series of papers was built around, was demonstrating that what was actually happening can be replicated by synthetically selling puts and calls on each of the individual components of the indices themselves, right? So what we literally did was walk through the dynamics of how value generates its excess return and then reprice that in the framework of what would happen if I agreed in advance to sell a call option on anything that outperformed and sell a put option on anything that underperformed, which is functionally what you're doing with a systematic value strategy, right? You're agreeing to buy something if it falls in value and you're agreeing to sell something if it rises faster than the market in total. And so, you know, one of the things I would point out for simplification purposes, we price these as if they were vanilla options. Technically, they should actually be outperformance options, both against the index and against the fundamentals. That's a lot harder to price. <laughs> and so when you're doing it, uh, we did it on, I want to say roughly 1600 stocks, right? So to turn that into an outperformance option would require some pretty heroic calculations um, that uh, candidly me and, and my beta fish on my desk are not prepared to do. Um, but regardless, you end up when you do it in aggregate, actually with a number that is very, very similar. And we we're able to explain basically the entirety of the value premium. Right. With that type of behavior and also explain the underperformance. So I think it's it's worth going into a little bit more detail on the underlying mechanics of your option framework. Right. So it's, there's two dimensions to it. One is size and one is book to market. So first of all, is there anything special about book to market? Um, I know you did go into some detail on some of the flaws of book to market and how some of those flaws have become especially prominent or impactful in the modern era. Um but does the same basic framework and then prognosis for value apply if you use different value metrics like PE? It, it, it does. Yeah, it, it does for the very simple reason that if you actually were to disaggregate the source of volatility in the book to market phenomenon, right, all of the volatility is contained on the market side. Right. I mean, it's very rare that book changes by any significant for earnings and for cash flows. And yeah, I mean, and that's actually part of the reason why I would argue that book to market had the most demonstrable impact in the past because it's actually the slowest moving. Right. So sales changes more rapidly than book value does for the most part. Earnings trade change much more rapidly than book value does for the most part. Right. Because at best, your book value should reflect some compound component of your earnings less dividend streams. Right. And so you, you basically are just isolating more and more of the volatility by moving to, mar to, to a book to market, right? You're isolating more and more of the volatility in the price, right? And again, that just reinforces the idea that what you've actually done is just synthetically sell options. If you're generating the source of your return through the price framework and your behavior is largely determined by the price component, well, then it's just an option. Right. So, okay. So let's walk through... An example. So you've got a small value stock, um, and you you do a great job of this in the paper. I'm trying to I'm trying to recall it. Cause it's been a while since I've read it, but it's been a while since I read it too. But the um, just very quickly for anyone who's watching, if you wanted to go to logicafunds.com, um, it's available on our research page. And there's three parts of the series, and and I'm sort of digging into part two now because you guys actually went into the underlying mechanics of your options yep. framework and. So the idea is a small value investor will sell a stock if it moves into either it goes up into a higher market cap category 
or it goes up into a higher book to market category, right? right? right. And so you've got in, in large value has sort of a, a almost an opposite profile where it will you will buy it if it goes down into a smaller market cap category. Um, so so you've got all these different categories and different um, buy sell agreements essentially based on whether they move from one category to another, because systematically you've agreed to rebalance into stocks of these characteristics, right? And so you're synthetically creating an option series that for every stock based on its category in each period to reflect the net premium or, or that you either get or pay from holding a stock with these characteristics. Am I yeah, no, on the right track? no, no, you're on exactly the right track. I mean, the easiest way to think about it is that there are more categories that can migrate into small value than can migrate into large growth, for example, right? Or it is harder and less frequent for those migrations to occur. And so almost by definition, the options that you're selling or buying in those scenarios, right? Because when you buy a small growth portfolio, you know, to a, to a certain extent, you have sold fewer options than you have sold if you're in small value. Large growth sells fewer options than if you buy a small value portfolio, right? And so the differences between those largely explain actually the difference performance, the differences in performance over time. So yeah, so basically you are selling Vega and it's the number of of it's it's the number of options that you're able to sell Vega on that that dictates the size of the premium. Is that generally the, okay? Yeah, I mean that's, or, that's or yeah, yeah it, it, correct. I mean it's it, it's an easy way to think about it. Effectively, if you are buying small value, you are selling more options than if yep. you do large growth, right? right. Um, and that's when again, when you look at what's called the migration frequency, the propensity for stocks to leave that bucket or enter that bucket. That's basically what we're calculating. And again, it reverses into telling and explaining the value premium, the small and value premiums that we experience. Right, right. So yeah, so you're multiplying the expected premium by the probability of migrating from one category to another. And and that's generally how you get to your, which I think is really, really um, intuitive, actually. And I was, um, on the one hand, really astonished by how well this options-based framework mapped to the empirical results, you know, yeah, it's, um, yeah. especially for small value, the expected premium from the options selling thesis was almost exactly the same as a realized premium from the, um, from, from a small value strategy. Which, which to be clear, right. I mean, there, there's a stochastic component to that. Like over the time period that we have, you would expect the two to converge, but at any point in time, right. There's a, a highly stochastic dynamic. Oh, no question. For sure. And, and your migration probability yeah, exactly, right. will happen over the long term, but not over the short term. And yeah. But that's actually one of the interesting things that comes out of it because under a passive framework, right. You actually would expect far less migration. Right, things effectively become frozen into their relative positioning, right. and as a result, the returns associated with a strategy that relies on those migrations or the risks of those migrations, you would actually expect it to fall. Okay, so that that is really fascinating. So, so, so on the one hand, because I know in, in your part three of the series, you also connect the value premium to market volatility regimes, and you sort of demonstrate, yeah, during periods of high 
uh, ambient volatility. And I think you use sort of 1966 to 1944 as a period of fairly high volatility. And then this great moderation from 44 to 75, very low volatility. And, and then a subsequent period of higher volatility. And you show that the value premium is highly explained yep. by the volatility regime, right? So there's there's that component, which I think I find very intuitive. But then there's also the this other component of the probability of migration, yeah. Which so you, so so to the extent the premium is a function of the carry on Vega from selling options and the probability of migration. So if Vega is small, then you've got a lower expected premium. If the probability of migration is small, you've got a lower expected premium. So you've got these sort of competing dynamics. And so what is the what does that say about the prognosis for the for for value, systematic value, you know, as your thesis plays out? Well, if if I'm correct about the continued migration into passive, right, you're effectively talking about a higher and higher fraction of stocks that just get frozen, right? And so it's part of the reason why I emphasize that if you really did this properly, you would convert it to an outperformance option as compared to an, a vanilla option. Right. Um, I'll leave that for someone younger and smarter than me. But the you know, having shown the path, I can let somebody else do some work for a change. Well, yeah, but the um, drift term is small, right? Like, I mean, if you're if it depends on the rolling frequency, but if if the rolling frequency is sort of monthly or or quarterly, then the average drift term is very very small, and so you can almost and I know you're going to argue that that drift term is not priced in option theory. And so there's a, there's a convexity there that you could take advantage of, but notwithstanding all that, there's like, you can, I think you can actually eliminate that drift term to a large extent if, at a, at a hot, fairly high rolling frequency. And I agree you'll get greater precision if you use the excess, but like you get, certainly you get qualitatively in the right direction. Yeah, yeah I, that, exactly. But. And that, that's why I, like it's just not worth the extra calculation from my yeah. standpoint. To, I, I feel fairly comfortable that we've actually demonstrated the mechanism that ironically fits actually with Ken French and Eugene Falma's re- reformation as they came back and revisited it and said, hey, we're not entirely sure this exists anymore. We can't disprove it. Um, but here's actually the source of the returns. And they highlighted the migration dynamic. The irony is, is that most people, you know, it's very hard for people to think about stocks as actually options, right? And, you know, that's, that's happened in a variety of ways. Um, you know, it, I, I had a conversation that's going to go on to Real Vision in a couple of days, speaking with Jamie Catherwood of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, who's a you know, brilliant young historian in terms of the financial markets and just a lot of fun to talk with. And you know, there are changes that we have made in terms of the dynamics of capital structure that make equities option-like, right? So if we went back to the 19th century, if you bought shares in a company, you became liable for its debts, right? Which meant that there was a two-tail component associated with buying equities. The minute you eliminated that, you can actually see this in the in the data, that there was a mechanical step up in valuation for equities that occurred in the 1860s as that became standard, right? And it's because you'd abrogated the left tail. You could argue that there's some similarities to the idea of a Fed put, right? If the Fed is going to take away the left tail outcomes, that that raises the valuation of equities. And so I think those things all contribute to this type of behavior. But this broader thought process of what is a payoff function, which is really what options analysis is all about, right? Identifying the payoffs and pricing them properly it really hasn't penetrated into the into the valuation markets, right? People just haven't, the valuation theory has become 
ironically and, and not ironically, you know, expect as you might expect, as valuation does a worse and worse job of explaining returns, people seem to care less and less about what's actually true about how to value stuff. Right. So one yeah. thing that I was I was sort of curious about because I mean I actually really like your thesis. I find it very intuitive, and and I've done my own digging, and um, you know I, I think it's a valid risk that that investors should be thinking about how to hedge. But I also am curious about why we don't, or you know, do we or have we observed similar phenomena playing out in other markets? You know, are there any other foreign analogs in either you know in, in credit or in some other market maybe, or certainly in equities that might provide some some map or some guide or model about um, how this plays out. I mean, obviously, you know, the U I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my understanding is that a, a major motivating factor in your thesis is the change in regulations and migration from um, uh, defined benefit to the co- defined contribution plans. A lot of the, uh, you know, the IRAs, the 401ks, that sort of stuff, and the changes in regs that mandated a move to the least expensive products, right? So motivated this this move to passive. Um, are there analogs? I mean, I know that the superannuation model in in Australia certainly mandates uh, savings. There's other models around the world that, that approximate the same sort of objective, obviously with some nuanced differences. But are there is there any other model you can point to that might provide some kind of map or education about how this whole thing evolves and plays out? So the quick the quick answer is that that unfortunately, as you highlighted, this is an exponential function, so it increases in terms of its severity and impact as it gets further and further through the process. The only analogs that we can point to are markets that have been managed in the past, right? So I've, people have heard me talk about the Nazi stock market, for example, right? So, and, and that, by the way, did not end well on, an, on a single day. It fell 90% um, when it was reopened effectively, right? So the answer is no. And <laughs> that creates, you know, part of the problem, right, is that I have a hypothesis. Not, you know, it's, it's, you know, the word thesis can refer to an English essay in which, you know, here's the thesis of my, my essay, right? But if we're talking in scientific principles, what I actually have is a hypothesis that is unknowably true until the events occur that actually demonstrate that this was the case, right? And so part of the challenge is is that this is in no way the only thing that's going on, right? There's lots of other stuff that is unique to this market and technology moves apace in a variety of ways. And so, you know, for our investors, one of the things that we've been increasingly writing about is that you need to understand not just the flows, but also the mechanical process that emerges as equities are increasingly used both in index form and in single stock form for things like structured products, right, which are used for yield enhancement purposes. And those structured products have never really existed, right, in part because we never had interest rates this low that led people to forego many of those protections that are created by the limited liability corporation, right? I mean, you know, the irony is somebody who, if you look at the academic literature and you look at the data series in terms of volatility selling, right, the XIV is, is something obviously that I played a role in as well. Um, you know, people would do the math and say, you know, well, selling volatility has the same return profile as being long equities, right? So, and, and it carries better, right? It offers higher current income associated with it, right? 
And yet when you actually are selling equities, all you've done is remove that protection on the left tail, right? You could theoretically lose a hell of a lot more than you actually put into the trade, right? And so you should expect a higher premium associated with it, right? I don't, I don't think that's theoretical anymore. Well, that is, so again, this is part of the irony, right? We saw it with the XIV and then people continued to do it. And we saw Alberta, I mean, you guys are largely Canadians, right? So I mean, you saw Alberta investment management blow up, right? Um, a blow up is too strong of a phrase, right? But the losses associated with that product, I think actually um, one of your guests was highlighting the dynamics there that a, a strategy that it had, you know, a, a you know six plus sharp ratio throughout its history now, if you look at the entirety of its history, it's a minus two, right? And, and um, again, I wish I could lay credit to it, it being my observation. Neil Chris at Hutchin Hill, you know, is famous for the expression that a high sharp ratio asset is just one that hasn't seen its left tail event yet, right? Um, and, and that's a perfect illustration of it, right? The XIV went to zero functionally in a couple of days. I, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they were talking about the diamond. They're like, well, did you get the warning to like scale up the trade? I'm like, it went to zero in two days, right? I mean, like, <laughs> when was I supposed to scale up that trade? Come on. Um, you obviously weren't watching. Yeah, yeah, I just wasn't paying attention, right? I mean, the, 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 the amazing part about that trade, actually, is that I know professional investors at very well-known firms that were buying XIV into the closing minutes of February 5th, 2018. And I mean, these are guys running billions of dollars that did not know that there was a NAV ticker associated with XIV. They were paying 72 bucks for it. The NAV was printing 11, right? <laughs> I mean, it was like, you, you did what? Like, I don't understand how I lost money. I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> you know. But, but efficient markets. That, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Also, yeah, I was going to ask. Also ask uh, oh, go sorry. Ahead. God, you no, go ahead, Richard. No. <laughs> No, I was going to ask. I mean, uh, as Michael pointed out earlier, I mean, this uh, your 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 hypothesis on passive flows is part of a larger mosaic, right? And and we all obviously know that rates have been at zerp level for a while, and I think maybe it's these regulations that have allowed for passive flows to become such a large part of markets as a whole that has. Uh, uh, differentiated U.S. markets from perhaps European or Japanese markets that have had uh, uh, zero interest rate policies for for such a long time. But in in, in recognizing all of this, I mean, Buffett said if uh, we extrapolate uh, interest rates at zero for into the future, we're likely uh, experiencing cheap stocks as opposed to them being expensive. So, how do you kind of uh, put all these different moving parts together and 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 perhaps even understanding that some players may be adding fuel to the fire, witnessing this mania and sort of just adding fuel to, to surf the bubble up. Um, wow. Now, now you're, you're pushing me onto dangerous territory. Um, so first I think that um, you, you want to be very careful in interpreting anything Warren Buffett says, because Agreed. Warren is smarter than you. Um, and more conniving. And more conniving. And, and, and like, I mean, I have literally followed into, I'd followed him into trades. I've seen what he's done. And, you know, almost inevitably where someone's like, oh, Buffett made a mistake. It's like, man, no, you missed an option that he bought. Um, and, you know, people will highlight the dynamic of him selling 15-year puts on the Nikkei, the S&P. There's my dog in the background. Um, the, uh, you know, selling puts on the, the S&P, Nikkei, uh, FTSE, and Euro stocks, you know, in 2007 are like, oh, you know, 
how could you be so dumb and, and, and not realize that it was actually the terms of that trade construction that allowed him to take 10% of Goldman Sachs for a song, right? Um, just, I mean, brilliant, brilliant trade construction. And um, so I, I would be very careful in terms of interpreting that. I think Warren knows quite well that you can't actually use zero interest rates to discount equities for the very simple reason that the payoff functions going back to option theory of equities are radically different than a zero coupon bond. And I do think that this is actually going to play into the dynamics of what we see going forward, right? So in just in really simple terms, if you think about the outcomes for an equity, it looks you know like an upward sloping uh, cone where the you know, upward sloping in terms of its mean, but the outcomes are zero and let's just call it infinity to make life simple, right? And so at the terminal point is where you have maximum uncertainty. If I think about a riskless bond, a risk-free bond, a sovereign bond, it's actually the exact opposite. It looks like a football, right? I have maximum certainty at the end point. So to relate those two instruments, you actually have to use options, Right? And this goes back to put call parity, which is that the value of a stock is actually the value of a call minus a put plus the present value of the dividends plus the present value of the forward strike price. Right Now, if I do that, all of a sudden I realize I have a totally indeterminate equation because what I do know is, is that the forward strike, right, that is sensitive to interest rates. Right, So higher interest rates means that's going to fall in value. Lower interest rates means that's going to rise in value. The dividend is uncertain. Because the dividend has a nominal and a real component to it, as well as a share of the economy component to it, right? So do corporate profits rise or fall based on the underlying phenomenon? Is the interest rate a real phenomenon or is it an inflation phenomenon? If it's an inflation phenomenon, then you would expect your dividends to rise, right? And it's unclear what the discount factor would do to that PV component. On the call minus put component, you know explicitly that it works in the opposite direction of interest rates because calls rise in value as interest rates rise because they're effectively a loan, right? And puts fall in value as interest rates um, as interest rates rise, right? So that call minus put component of the value goes up. Like there is no way to use interest rates to figure out what the value of equities are. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good point. And you, you only have to look to other markets like Japan or Europe or whatever, where you've got lower right. interest rates than what we observe in the US. Exactly. And so this is, yeah, exactly. And this is, this is the silliness, right? I mean, no one is doing the work. Nobody's stopping to say, hey, wait a second. Theoretically, there is no link between these two, right? It just creates a really nice narrative that allows people to say, hey, equities are going up. And I, you know, it's all because of the Fed. Asness discredited the Fed model in a, you know, in in like a early 1990s paper and and many have discredited it since. I think we've got a, a, a paper in the actuarial journal that discredits it as well. I mean, there's just no theoretical or empirical basis for the Fed model, but, you know, the reality is stocks go up and people need justification to buy. And it's a, you know, this enters the lexicon without having any sort of empirical merit. And that's just the so way this it is, is. Uh, this is I, great. I would just highlight that the Fed model actually came from Ed Yardini, who also was the guy who said, Hey, guess what? The world's going to fall apart on Y2K. Right. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, um, I had a, a theological debate with somebody on Twitter earlier today where I pointed out that, you know, zero doesn't always mean the absence of something, right? It can be positive something and negative something, right? Um, so, you know, that's like, there's there's just no evidence. There's no theoretical link. There's actually increasingly negative empirical evidence, right? Where we actually see interest rates rise alongside equities typically, right? The, the Richard, Richard Werner's done some work on that too. 
Well, Rich, so, so Rich, exactly. And so, so Richard Werner is, is a true genius, right? I, I play one on TV. He's a true genius. Um, his work in 2014 where, and, and, and just very quickly, like he did the same thing I did, right? I mean, he basically walked through forensically and said, what are people saying? And is it true? And so he wrote a 2014 paper where he literally went through the whole fractional reserve model. And instead of saying, Hey, you know, how about let's talk about it theoretically, et cetera. He literally radio tagged a mortgage application and said, at what point do we reference reserves? And the answer was never, never. Right. And so Werner's analysis is hundred percent correct. Like the value that is created in the, under these dynamics and the reason that we see credit expansion associated with this. And then it goes to, to Mike's point in terms of why we see these components associated with rising interest rates relative to equity prices is it's the collateral component. As prices rise, your borrowing capacity, your collateral increases, that in turn creates demand for real investment. As people say, Hey, there's, I have more collateral against which it's I can the borrow. Reflexive dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. It's, right. That's amazing. I wanted One to get the- some tactical questions, Michael, as well. Like, um, and I know, you, listen, you run, um, obviously you, you run strategies, right? You run an, you're, you're a partner in an investment firm um, along with Wayne. And so obviously you've got a thesis that you're betting on, but it's, I, I think you'll acknowledge it's, it's not the only risk or opportunity that investors should be contemplating, right? And you've got, I'm just sort of thinking about the plight of a typical RIA with, you know, a billion dollars or a few RIAs at an RIA firm with with a few billion dollars and um, clients with real liabilities in the form of maybe it's endowments, you've got to meet real uh, distribution obligations, or maybe it's retirees who need to meet educational and retirement liabilities. And you've got global rates near zero and equities at um, these valuations, you know, I'll let you comment on whether you feel they're high or low and whether there's any merit in that discussion at all. But, um, you know, what are the risks that investors should be thinking about hedging and how do you construct a portfolio to meet real liabilities in five, 10, 20, 30 years at the moment that sort of that's that scales, you know, and I don't, I don't know how you think about your, your strategy. Maybe you think about it as being infinitely scalable or, or, you know, it's, it can be, it can be core for all individuals. I'd be, I'd be surprised, I think, but I'd want to hear more about that. But I guess in general, how should an, an RIA that's bounded by compliance and regulations and clients with tracking your version, but real, real liabilities they've got to meet, et cetera, how should they be thinking about building portfolios here? Well, there's an awful lot of questions there. First, um, I think we're infinitely scalable. We'd like to have that money in $10 million chunks, please. Um, <laughs> the, um, you know, we, of course, face limitations of scale, but we have built our portfolio to trade the more liquid components of the equity markets. And so we, by and large, are isolating ourselves to the S&P 500 in terms of the constituents that are in our portfolio. Um, Within our portfolio, only about a third of it is actually allocated to single equities. The remaining portion is allocated to more macro securities, including the S&P, for example, which we think has characteristics that make it very attractive in terms of, in particular, misprice correlation. you know, so and and the last part that I would add while I'm talking about Logica is is that I have the luxury of not having to worry about your liabilities, right? I like that's not my problem, 
right? I can solve a portion of it, but yep. I don't actually have to tell you how to invest to meet your liabilities. Now, yep. <clears throat> taking that hat off and putting on the hat of a concerned citizen and saying, how do these liabilities get met? I would actually suggest you already know the answer to this, right? You had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who was discussing the dynamics of, yeah, look, at the next 10 years, there's no way a CIO can rely on the same sort of return profile that they had previously. And yet we're less funded and require higher returns and more allocation is going into the riskier portion of the portfolio with basically the idea that the asset class is going to find a way to deliver it regardless. Now, the irony is, is that my analysis would suggest that's going to feel awfully good as people continue to pile money in, in an increasingly beta oriented or passive way. Right. And so you're going to see the prices rise and then you're going to try to take some money off the table and you're going to have March 24th. Right. Um, because there's just no bid underneath it, right? There's no incremental buyer in a market that is passive where you're presuming that the current price is always the right price. Why should somebody increase their allocation at that point, right? Well, and it, so again, it goes it back to that idea of the value player being the put under the market. Exactly. That's it's right? brilliantly you're, you're put, Mike. Totally lacking that. Yeah, that's exactly. And 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 ironically, we're inten- we're increasingly shooting that player, right? I mean, we're basically yeah, you're the loser at the table. Right. Um, and so, you know, we're going to take you out. Right. And and again, back to my thesis. Right. I mean, if, if you assume markets are not frictionless, which I would argue very strongly they are not. Right. Then firing that cautious person and replacing them with an incautious person who's willing to drive at 400 miles an hour. Of course, that's going to make markets look better. Right. Like, you know, it's, the also, speed going on the to, it's also going to promote the incompetence. Right. So the, the, the CIO from a behavioral perspective or the IRA who say, or the RIA who assumes that they should have some amount of assets at Logico or at some other uh, shop that's managing the risk that is having that th- those alternative strategies to put some shock absorbers is going to be increasingly coming under fire and being fired. Well, and, and, and again, I am sympathetic to that. Right. Because and this mm-hmm. is, again, part of the thesis behind Logico, like it's unreasonable to say to that person, hey, you know, you should put your job at risk because I'm telling you that it's a dangerous environment, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just not reasonable. And um, so like all the systems are in place. I mean, I've described this. This is, uh, this is a doom loop for active managers, right? The tools that we use make assumptions. Sharp ratio assumes things about the market. Like there is an assumption embedded in the calculation of beta and alpha about the market. And, it, you know, I'll tell you occasionally crazy things, I've got my oldest son who's like sliding along the wall behind to make sure he doesn't make it into the camera. Um, the, it's happy hour. He can walk it, by and give a wave. He's yeah. almost 21. He, he actually joined Mark and, uh, and, and Bill and I uh, uh, yesterday. So it was a lot of fun. Um, he's just now he's mad at me for bringing him into the subject. But um, welcome to the world of 20 of year olds. Um, Embarrass them at any opportunity that you can. That's I, my, father, my father certainly did it. I plan on doing it as well. But yep, um, your too. goal is to get them to hate you enough that they leave the house, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, when, when, when you look at the tools that we use for managing managers, right, they presume that there can't be these sort of feedback loops that we're talking about, right? I mean, mathematically, to calculate a an alpha or a beta presumes that there is actually a you know IID distribution that has the same mean and standard deviation over time for the benchmark, right? Well, if the benchmark becomes self-referential and actually exhibits convexity, 
then mechanically alpha is going to shift negative. And, and you've seen some of the research that we've shown on this, that this is exactly what we're seeing, right? Yep. Well, if you turn around and you say to active managers, well, you have negative alpha, therefore I'm going to fire you. You're just accelerating this process, right? And so like yep. everything is set up right now to just destroy it. And then it's further magnified by the fact that the vanguards and black rocks of the world can stand on a fake city on a hill in a soapbox and basically say, oh yeah, we're here for the little guy Right. We're protecting them from the rapacious, you know, asset managers that are trying to charge excess fees for underperformance. And next thing you know, you're passing all sorts of laws and regulations that favor passive. Right? It's the metaphor- accelerate this even further. It's, I'm sorry, um, what? It's, it's the metaphorical turkey. It's Taleb's uh, Thanksgiving yeah. turkey, right? Where the farmer, the, the turkey is born, the farmer keeps him safe. Every day the farmer comes in and feeds the turkey. Um, when the fox comes around, the farmer shoes it away. Every day, the turkey gets more and more confident in the in Vanguard and Black. I mean, sorry, in the farmer. And <laughs> He's nurtured well until the left tail comes along. Absolutely, you know, and then it, it becomes maximally confident right before Thanksgiving, right when the, the time the farmer comes and chops off its head. And that, I mean, well, so, that's, that's yeah. really what we're in the investment community at the moment. Well, so, so part of my pushback against that analogy, and it's not very hard because I actually do think that's right. I think in, in, in effect, that's what we will see. But the entire time the farmer knows what he's doing, he's protecting his investment with the anticipation of killing the turkey, right? And so when the farmer says to you, oh yeah, I have such a well taken care of turkey, you know, like you as the observer know what he's actually thinking, right? But the vanguards and black rocks of the world are functionally cults and they actually believe they're, I mean, it's more dangerous, right? They believe they're protecting the investor. Right. Right. So like, I, you know, and don't, please don't take this the wrong way, but you know, Malvern PA doesn't exactly attract the stars of the industry, right? It's, you know, this is not where if you're intellectually curious, you don't go to work for Vanguard, right? You go right. to work for Vanguard because you want safety, right? You want to be in a good job. You want your mom to be like, oh yeah, he works for Vanguard, right? I mean, that's like, that's safe. That's, you know, you're not going to get the innovative thinkers. I can assure you that I would have lasted about 15 and a half minutes at Vanguard as an employee, because I literally would have been, you know, like they would have been like, yeah, this guy asks too many questions, right? He pushes too hard against the envelope yeah. and he makes Wait me feel minute. uncomfortable. Yeah, that's, you're not supposed to have questions. How many assumptions are in the <laughs> exactly. hypothesis? And they all have to be 100% true. Exactly. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let me do a probability. Yeah. Michael, <laughs> I, I wanted to get back to uh, kind of uh, one of Adam's earlier questions. And you were mentioning some of the instruments that you trade at Logica. So you mentioned some yeah. single names, some of the more uh, liquid ones, the S&P. What are some of the other instruments, if you care to share? Because I'm, I'm kind of thinking of some of these other broader, maybe even geopolitical risks that we see in the horizon. I'm, I was kind of wondering how you think of them and how that factors into the investment universe that you trade and into your broader strategy. So at Logica, we have two primary components, right? So we have the long volatility component, which is S&P calls, S&P puts and single name calls on components of the S&P um, largely selected, although we've introduced a new module in the past couple of months that has slightly different characteristics. It's actually what we call our anti-momentum portfolio. Um, but largely our stocks are selected on the basis of a momentum type dynamic, right? And, and that's in part because we would point out that passive, which is the growing force on the market, 
has a momentum bias. It's the single most important component to it, right? Sure. Yeah. And it, and again, um, you know, we are not doing exactly momentum. We're, we're trying to take advantage of a slightly different feature. I would actually describe it as inelasticity. We're looking for stocks that exhibit the greatest response to the incremental dollar coming in from a passive type vehicle, but close enough to think about it as highly correlated with momentum, right? We have a second component to the portfolio, which is what we call our macro overlay. And that's by and large composed of products that don't need an expansion of volatility in terms of the specific components of equity volatility in order to participate. And so the extreme scenarios that you enter into there are when you get to a point, you can think about equity volatility the way we think about it is more of a cost to capital, right? So I couldn't care less about the implied versus realized dynamics. I actually think that's a false methodology and it only means something if you're delta hedging. Right. And so just very quickly, why that doesn't matter to us is if you think about what you're doing when you're delta hedging, if I think the return surface, if the instrument itself has drift and has a uh, effectively a convex surface by delta hedging, I'm selling that convex instrument and canceling out the convexity that I'm actually seeking. Right. So why would I do that? That's completely in counter thesis. On the macro assets, in I can see uh, Adam's like thinking, he's like, uh, is that true? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, but yes, it's true. Um, it, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think about the, the delta, where the where the delta gets large on the curve surface relative to uh, to a linear model. So, anyways, keep keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an interesting exercise to go through, right? And it'll also lead you in the direction of understanding the the. Uh, correlation coefficient when you do that across a 500 stock portfolio or 505 stock portfolio. But um, the, the the macro components for us are effectively the components that don't need an expansion of volatility or that can continue to perform if there's an extreme expansion of volatility, right? And so those would include rates, they would include the dollar, they would include gold, right? We are <laughs> in the process of evaluating some additional modules, um, in particular, I would argue that some inflation components have some interesting characteristics. Tips, in particular, have a anti-volatility component. A, you know, I talked about the anti-momentum portfolio. Tips, the way that they're structurally priced and traded in the markets, actually rely on the pricing of volatility. I can walk you through that, but so they have some interesting characteristics for a portfolio. That Actually, if you would indulge, short points there, I'd, I'd be I'd be curious if you've got you know if, if they're well formed. Yeah, no. Uh, the, um, so, in really simple terms, if you think about the dynamics of how a tip is actually priced and what you're talking about when you talk about inflation expectations, right? There, you need to split that into a nominal bond. You need to split it split it into the tradable instrument, the tip itself, and the spread between the two is what's called the inflation uh, component, right? The inflation break even. Mm-hmm. That inflation break-even is held in check by an inflation swaps market, which effectively tracks that underlying component, but has as a realized component the delivery against CPI, and it tends to trade within the one and two-year time horizon, right? So if you're going to trade the difference between an inflation expectation and a realized inflation level, one of the interesting outputs is, is that virtually all of the volatility associated with inflation on a realized basis is tied to the energy sector. It only represents about 10% of the weighting, but it's about 70% of the annual volatility. There's very low volatility associated with housing, healthcare, all the other components that make up the vast majority of CPI, right? And so if you're going to trade this market, I mean, look, if you had transparency in terms of the future price of energy, why would you waste your time with inflation swaps? You'd be trading energy, Right. And so you hedge out that component. Well, hedging out that component requires you to buy options. 
And those options have a positive correlation with other forms of volatility. And so the break-evens actually are forced to widen mechanically as volatility increases, right? Which paradoxically, we could enter into an inflation regime that enhances volatility on CPI, but to hedge out the energy components is still sensitive to that volatility component, right? So it creates very interesting dynamics for a portfolio like ours that is at its core long volatility. It allows us to express a rate component that actually has a negative volatility dynamic to it. So we've discussed this internally um, because we focus a lot on sort of, as you know, trying to hedge the the big muscle movements, right? Inflation and growth shocks and tips obviously feature prominently in a discussion of of inflation hedges. And we've always wondered out loud just how reliable an inflation hedge is where the entity that to a large extent controls the definition of the consumption basket is needs to be relied upon in order to, to, to pay out on shifts in inflation, right? I mean, the government can change how they define inflation so that they, the actual, the, the consumption basket that they use to measure CPI and therefore measure their liability is more favorable to them and less reflective of the actual underlying inflation that um, their citizens are experiencing. How do you how do you think about the risks there? And are there any other types of allocations that you can add to a tips portfolio that might also help to hedge against this inflation risk? So the quick answer is that um, while I know that there is a cottage industry. Uh, built around decrying the the CPI and the hedonic adjustments and everything else associated with it. I'm much less concerned about that dynamic in the United States, at least at this point, than I would be if I was in Argentina, right? Now, it remains to, to be seen, we may end up in Argentina. Tested, right? I mean, there were no TEPs around in the, in the 1970s, so we don't really know how governments re- would have responded to an actual pickup in inflation risk. So, I mean, I guess we're, we're relying on the credibility um, of the U.S. government. But when push comes to shove, I guess it I don't know. I mean, I mean let's, let's just be honest. Like one of your when you use the actual phrase credibility. Right. Of course, the U.S. government is not very reliable. Right. Um, but the incentive structure for them to destroy what little credibility they have by intentionally fudging the inflation figures at this point. It's just not there, right? It may be eventually, but it's not there currently, right? Um, the second component is, is I think we always have to be very careful when we use historical uh, episodes to, to say what has happened or what actually would have occurred, right? So, you know, um, I'm well known for speaking, for telling a contra thesis on the dot-com cycle, right? In terms of what actually drove the dot-coms. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that we have the story of the inflation in the 1970s totally wrong as well, right? Which is the the assumption that people have about the inflation in the 1970s is that it's a story of negative real rates. I just don't actually think that's the case. I think what you actually had was an outward shift in the aggregate demand function that was tied to the maturation of the baby boom, women entering the labor force, minorities entering the labor force and being able to acquire things, financial innovation in the form of credit cards, installment debt, et cetera that allowed an outward shift to the aggregate demand curve, which naturally causes an increase in prices. That increase in prices was then met by resistance from the central bank, 
who rose interest rate, who, who increased interest rates. Well, if you have a population shift, an outward shift in aggregate demand that is driven by a younger age population, they exhibit very low sensitivity to interest rates in terms of their consumption dynamics, right? They're, you could care less. I mean, think about the number of kids in their 20s who stop and think about what the credit card interest rate is. We know that they're at all-time highs, right? Or the interest rate on their student loans relative to them spending that money and obtaining the, the uh, increase in human capital. They exhibit low sensitivity, but who exhibits high sensitivity? Manufacturers, right? People who are building factories, right? They look at that signal and say, okay, we're not going to meet it. And so even though you had that increase in interest rates, what you actually did was restrict supply relative to an outward shift in the aggregate demand function. That's what drove the inflation of the 1970s, not so this nonsense. So why did we see that about, picked up in real GDP? I mean, obviously, real GDP contracted. Well, by definition, you, you say that infl- you're, you're talking about inflation, right? So if you say, hey, we have very high inflation, instead of saying, oh, we have an outward shift in aggregate demand that actually caused prices to rise because we were restricting supply. Right. You again, can, you like can. we're we're relying on the definition of the consumption basket, right? right. We're having an increase in prices. Completely so agree. So, what is the consumption? Look at look at the actual data in the 1970s. We had the highest housing starts in the history of the United States on roughly half the population base we have today. Right, the demand for durable goods was so high, the demand for automobiles was so high that despite the fact that the U.S. auto industry couldn't build and sell any more product. You had an influx of product from Datsun and Toyota and other providers into the United States that created massively negative terms of trade. Right, right. It just so, doesn't so fit the data that, set. That was the easing in Japan. And so Volcker was a mistake. Pure and Volcker, simple. It was a Volcker policy was error. Massive policy error. Central banker we ever had. That amazing. So worst policy error set up the, the Japanese uh, experience and the easy credit that was facilitated in Japan to export all of those goods and services to the United States to fill that gap, inevitably leading to the palace being worth all of California. Not inevitably, but yes, I, I, I agree <laughs> right. with that story. Yes. <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, yeah, I uh, never thought that. I like that. So story. your thesis is we actually that. had strong economic growth in the 1970s the 1970s had the highest rate of job growth of any decade in American history, again, despite having half the level of the population. More jobs so it's were just created. It's just misspecified inflation 100%. that deflates real GDP. Correct. And so, and so why did stocks and, Fed... so stocks and bonds did poorly? Well, bonds did poorly because of miss you know low real rates or i mean high, no, sorry, no. High inflation bonds did or... terribly because the central bank hiked interest rates through the whole process yeah okay policy here and stocks did poorly because discount so you rate went get, you, you create well at that point you actually did create a scenario where why the hell would you take risk when you could get 15 percent yields on opportunity costs rate? absolutely so just yeah high rates crowded out I mean, we, we um, all talk about how cheap stocks were in 1981 and go back and look at what George Soros and everyone else is saying. They're like, oh, my God, the opportunity is bonds. Right. Like, I mean, either we believe George Soros was an idiot or we think that he was a genius. And I, I tend to think he was a lot smarter than Paul Volcker. Well, I mean, it's been Good. borne out, right? We've seen the relative returns of long bonds versus stocks over the last 30 years. And, and um, you know, well, that is the, the best horse race. Asset. Yeah. yeah, by far. 
that long but, it, but I think that actually, I mean, again, like my, you know, this is similar to the passive dynamic, right? I mean, the only thing I refuse to accept are the sacred cows, right? Volker's a genius, you know, he saved America and blah, blah. Like those are just, those are nonsense stories. They don't fit the fact pattern. Interesting. Okay. So, so do you have any concern for inflation going forward? Is that a risk that should be on investors' radar? And if so, you know, how do you hedge that or manage that? So I do think you have to have concern. Um, I think there's, there's a couple of components around that dynamic that are significant, right? Um, One, we've entered into a regime in which all of the behavior that we have in the United States and elsewhere around the world is in one form or another restricting the supply function, right? So the provision of services in particular has been catastrophically restrained by the behavior associated with the coronavirus, right? And we're seeing that with a complete collapse in the purchasing of services and an explosion in relative demand for goods, in particular durable goods. Um, That subsidy may or may not go away, right? We just don't know this yet. Right. And so what we know is, is that situations where significant inflation have occurred, in particular hyperinflationary scenarios, it has been when the government has chosen to subsidize consumption while simultaneously engaging in policies that restrict supply. Right. And we're doing that on two fronts. One, we're entering into a regime in which we're cutting off the supply from China. And the second is, is that we're reducing the flexibility of economies to respond in a flexible way in the provision of goods and services in the private sector domestically, right? So I I absolutely think that there is a risk that we have another significant policy error. I think the irony is we have been going through roughly 10 years of policy error since the global financial crisis, where in many ways we've done the mirror image of what we did in the 1970s. Our policies have been focused on maintaining the production function, preserving zombie firms that don't have an economic reason to exist, right? While restricting demand or more accurately, not recognizing that demand itself should be restrained by the demographics associated with slowing population growth in an aging population, right? The and I think that's the velocity of money, right? At the end of the day, the velocity of money function is what what you're getting at. Well, that that's that's the output actually. So, so I mean, the velocity of money is an output of the fact that there is very low real demand for investment capital. Right, propensity to save by the demographic uh, components of the aging population, and and it, it is the baby boomers who are retiring and who own most of the assets anyway, and they're they're more inclined to save than to 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 spend. Actually, no, I would flip that on its head and and highlight that baby boomers are more inclined to spend than they are to save because they are now into the harvesting function. But ironically, not ironically, I would argue. Um, uh, uh, incompetently, intentionally, we have subsidized their consumption function by increasing the asset value, right? Whether that's a tied to the Federal Reserve's actions or whether that's tied to the dynamics of passive, you know, I'll leave for smarter people. Sadly, it's uh, the grandparents stealing from their grandchildren. Oh, I, I think that's 100% correct. Um, so we didn't really address the um, the question of how an RIA that needs to serve middle market or even an endowment or, I mean, anyone with a, a liability, a stream of liabilities that are sensitive to inflation. So, so sort of excluding many of the sort of public 
um, defined benefit pension plans where their payouts are not indexed to inflation. But any any private individual that's got a fund liabilities or um, institutions that have inflation-linked liabilities, how do they allocate capital right now? Um, I mean, Bill Gross said this very well. He saw us hope, right, in the 1970s. Like, you know the answer to this, that unless I'm right and you get a mechanical inflation of the equity asset class, the other asset classes are just not positioned to deliver the returns that are required to meet most of those return objectives. So, you know, my simple advice, and again, we've built our portfolio to try to take advantage of a feature in this market. I can't solve the problem for the RIA, right? I mean, you can't hire Logica and put all your capital in Logica and expect to meet your investment objectives, right? So I don't know what to tell you to do with the rest of that money, but I would just highlight that the, the simple answer is just get yourself as close to politically connected and too big to fail as you possibly can so that you'll be bailed out by the government, right? And I, I think you see that on a broad basis. Right? I mean, that's the way these things work. Right? At the end of the day, if you can't generate the returns through any form of reasonable expectation of productivity improvements, growth, et cetera, the only thing you can do is rely on you know Caesar to bail you out. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a reasonable place to end. I think we could keep going. There's like four other yeah. <laughs> immediate threads to pull, but uh, absolutely more and more that's money. A, yeah, chasing, that's right. Exactly. Chasing more and more things. Yeah. And, and Jason Buck was wondering whether Mike Green said anything intelligent. I think we could probably say that there are one or two tidbits in here that, <laughs> that, he, that he offered. Um, so yeah, this is, this has uh, been a lot of fun and um, really appreciate your time and insight, Mike. And um, hopefully we can do this again. Cause I mean, like I said, there's, there's a, a variety of different directions that we could have gone here. Richard uh, for sure really wanted to dig into your thoughts on MMT and the macro you know, thesis, yeah. What, 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 what exactly is the purpose it. of taxation? And and I had some questions on some of your your um, statements about the advantage of being young and naive relative to old and experienced. And and yeah. so there's lots of other different places to go, but we'll leave that for another occasion. Do you want to keep going at it, it maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to give everyone a, you know, an hour. We can, we can keep yeah. going. But. Yeah. No, I, so um, first of all, thank you. And, and Jason, uh, hopefully I didn't embarrass you, but um, the, the, to answer the question on MMT, I think at the, at the core of MMT is something similar to what Lacey Hunt and others have said. If the money is spent well, then it's fine. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the right way to think about government debt is not as debt. It doesn't meet the characteristics of household debt. It's actually equity in your nation, right? And so, you know, like equity, if you issue more equity and you don't increase the the positive productivity investments that allow you to grow the net income of your corporation, your dividend per share will fall by definition, right? Same thing happens with interest rates. Your capacity to service that debt will fall. Interest rates mechanically have to fall. This is what Lacey Hunt is making clear in his, you know, in his various interviews where he pushes back about the idea that there's some bond vigilante who can demand a higher rate of interest, right? That's called a person who sells your currency, right? Um, you know, that for, for better or worse, like we are probably heading down that path because the nonsense policies that I hear in terms of what we're going to spend money on, right? And, 
you know, people can castigate me for you know my views on climate change and everything else. But at the end of the day, replacing coal-fired energy with solar energy does not enhance productivity. Right? It just doesn't enhance productivity, except in the most obtuse form. Of, that's my dog again, who's waiting for somebody to come in through the door. He's my he's been um, my favorite character in this whole episode. So I know well, he's he's so much bring, bring more handsome that. than I am. Um, <laughs> but the um, but what's the purpose of taxation in a world where where um, debt doesn't matter? Oh, taxation's purpose is to to create a need for the currency. Right. The only reason why you need taxation is to create a situation in which if you don't pay the government, they're going to shoot you. Right. That's what it is for. And so this is part of the irony associated with the the parameters that we're engaged in. We're like, okay, let's waive this taxation. Let's waive that taxation. Right. You're setting up the the situation in which the demand for the currency to meet your obligations, the monopoly provider of violence. Right. The bully on the playground. Right. You're creating the conditions where they're like, yeah, no, you can have as much lunch money as you want. You don't need to, to, to pay like imagine yourself you're on the, the playground right the 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 schoolyard bully you know he's going to take your lunch money and you want to eat what do you tell your mom hey mom guess what the lunch price is doubled right whether it happened or not right you're going to demand additional currency that's what taxes are for they're to create a scarcity a demand component associated with currency so if you're subscribing to Lacey hunt's whole idea that unless the fed's liabilities become legal tender and the whole idea of high-powered money, uh, which would then really, in fact, create uh, uh, potentially hyperinflation. But if that doesn't happen, then it's only uh, through the means of a break, uh, break in supply chains and this whole deglobalization trend that we've been uh, uh, witnessing the last few months through corona. That would probably be the only avenue through which we might observe some form of inflation. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think we have to be very careful when we look at the 20th century, right? And this is one of the dangers that we have, particularly as quants, right? We rely on data that comes from a unique period in history in which I'll just lay it out in very simple terms, right? We started the 1900s with roughly a billion people in the global labor force. We finished the 2000s, right? We finished the 1900s with roughly five and a half billion people in the global labor force. So a five and a half X increase in the global labor force, all of whom needed Apartments, sofas, dishwashers, garages, microwaves, cars to get to work, the infrastructure to take care of them, et cetera. Over the next 100 years, we'll get to roughly 6.2 billion people in the global labor force. We're not even going to grow it by 10%. Right? And so to imagine that that's an environment in which there's an extraordinary increase in aggregate consumption functions, like that's really hard for me to see. Right. So inflation is hard to generate, at least the experience of rising general price levels is hard to experience in that environment of relative aggregate demand, low growth. And by the way, that 6.2 relies on some fantastic assumptions in terms of fertility rates for countries like Nigeria and Indonesia that increasingly look impossible to achieve. Right. So it's. Does that factor in, though, the the increase in potential standard of living across the globe? I mean, there's a fairly small portion of that grouping that would have the access to first world. I'm not actually sure how much of the world is would would make the leap from third and second world to first world. And what would that do for demand and the ability to uh, create that? Is that that's something that you don't think is feasible? I, I think that path is increasingly infeasible. And I would just highlight that those who have made the transition have largely done so by taking the place of 
lower skill and more menial laborers along the, the curve in the United States and the rest of the developed world. Um, you know, you have substituted American workers for in order Japanese, Korean, Chinese workers, right? And now we're actually talking about reshoring that because the productivity in the sectors that are historically tradable, the agricultural sector and the manufacturing sector, the, the productivity is so extraordinarily high that it's increasingly unclear that we need the rest of the world, right? And that that's hard to imagine is a positive for the emerging markets. Yeah, I, so how I, did the 4 billion people that live outside the first world, how are we expecting them to react to the reality that they will never rise to the same standard of living? Is that not a recipe for a pretty large acceleration in geopolitical risk? I think it is a recipe for an increased rise of a bipolar world that represents, you know, where one voice represents an exit from relations with the Western world and a move to autocratic norms that raises the standard of living for a select elite within those countries while suppressing the potential for growth and uh, uh, increase in living standards for the remainders of those populations, right? I think we're seeing this. I would also suggest that it would lead to a reaction function in the rest of the world where their fertility rates would plummet because they would realize that the potential for income expansion for their children would be far worse than it was for them. And as a result, they would make a choice not to have children. Right? And I think we're seeing all the evidence of that. And I think there's a very real chance that you end up with catastrophic outcomes in those regions around the world that potentially draw the Western world, the developed world into conflicts around those components. But we can't know that yet. Right. I mean, there, there is no march of progress that is guaranteed. Right. We happen to inhabit a lucky century, a fantastic century in which, by and large, by the measures that our ancestors would have would have looked at, we defeated death. Right. We eliminated any form of random death. We took away fertility or we took away mortality rates for women in the process of childbirth. We took away mortality rates for those in the prime of life tied to bacterial infections or viral infections. We're now seeing some of those reemerge, but in very minor fashion relative to what we would have seen historically. And so this was the most fantastic, you know, 150 years that the world has ever seen. And that becomes our frame of reference. Right. So you're a good one. An S curve, and we've we've got to we are not diminishing returns part of the S curve for the next until we get space travel done. I, I think that's I, I think that's right, and I think broadly that's really under and uh, underappreciated that we will eventually discover alternate forms of energy that allow us to accomplish radically more than we could today. Right, we will eventually discover the ability to travel off this rock and find you know, resources that allow people to say, okay, there is a better future for my children. That's largely what the United States and Canada and Australia represented to the, you know, quote unquote, developed world at that point, right? And, you know, I'm caught on the Grant Williams giving a positive shout out to smallpox, right? But you can't actually <laughs> underemphasize from a Western perspective, the dynamics of discovering a continent the size of North and South America that you depopulated and made available to the peasants of your society who are willing to take the risk of traveling on a boat for three months to get across an ocean and escape from the oppression tied to the nobles that inhabited your regime at that point, right? That changed the course of the world in such a fantastic way. And to disregard that, right? I mean, I'm not going to move into the Robert Gordon dynamic of everything wonderful that can be invented has been invented, but I do think it's really important to consider the ramifications of 
we've largely solved the hard problems, right? The ones that are left for us are like, how do we live forever? And I got to be honest with you, that's not a problem I personally want solved. I, I, you know, I'm happy with the opportunity that I've had to experience the world as I've seen it. And I'm not afraid of moving on to the next stage. So, you know, I'm personally very excited about the fact that we are, you know, currently focused on technology about how to maximize the number of likes you get on a dog farting on uh, it's, video. It, so it, it's, it I mean, seems we, like it, that's where we seem to yeah. have peaked from a technological. It, it's it's a little bit horrifying, but I agree with you on that. It's so, Mike. You know, I don't know if you talked about this with uh, with Jamie Catherwood as well, because I, I don't really know this. I, I sort of have a sense that through history there have been just sort of the the dark ages, the periods of growth through through global history where we've had expansion, the Roman empire, the proliferation of technology and then contraction. Is there any, I, you talked about the, the discovery of North America, South America as being one of these like, um, it, but are there other analogous periods where, okay, you, there was no discovery of anything new and there was this period of stagnation that you can point to. I'm sure there are. I just don't know them well enough to. Well, so the dark ages were. What's that? Right. That's what the Dark Ages were. The Dark right. Ages. So you, you, you basically lost the ability to transit on Roman roads across Western Europe, right? Giving way to banditry and a, and a collapse of trading spheres. And so you were limited to what was available in your local village. I mean, mm -hmm. and we're on that same pattern, right? If you think about the dynamics of things like student debt, it's functionally a form of serfdom, right? Serfdom yep. was reintroduced, was introduced in the Roman Empire because they couldn't keep workers on the farms, right? So mm -hmm. they made it illegal for them to leave the farms. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what we're doing now. We're setting up conditions that say it's illegal for our children through non-dischargeable debt, right, to escape from the burden of participating in our society. Right. They're forced to work. Well, perpetuating the the ones that are wealthy that can that can pay for and allow those those some of those children to escape that serfdom, but the vast majority uh, of the four billion that uh, that are in certainly the second third world are never going to uh, emerge. I, I think the four billion in the second and third world are uniquely challenged. I think that we are creating conditions that make it increasingly hard for the children in the first world to make those transitions. And I think one of the challenges that we have as professionals is that by and large, we represent individuals who are in the privileged class and we have to very carefully tread between seeking their best interests in a purely monetary and financial sense, and while simultaneously explaining to them that many, many of the stories that they have been told about what is in their best interest could very well not be in their best interest long term. Yeah, you're talking about the fabric of society coming undone at the seam. So it's a. I hope this is not the the the, the last point that we're raising to to end this happy hour. I was going to end that on that. Yeah. I don't, I don't Alcohol is a depressant. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, these these cycles are long in nature. I mean, this is this is the ebb and flow through history. I, I yeah. You know. I mean, people like to say that uh, one of the most dangerous phrases in finance is "this time is different," and I think uh, that is because of this last hundred fifty years that you were describing, which is so atypical in the long arc of history, of how how. Uh, uh, beneficial and, and everything in by way of the improvement and quality of life that has happened. But if we are indeed coming uh, into a crossroads, into a sort of paradigm shift, then indeed this time is different. And so people need to sort of contemplate uh, things that are outside of the realm of whatever observable past they have for their models. Or is it different? I mean, on what time frame, on what fractal of time are you referring to it being different? Last few decades, at least. 
correct, but over the last 200 or 500 years, it's not at all. Fact be well, last last 500 right. years broadly has been, you know, I would argue the last 500 years has been pretty darn positive, right? But that right. largely encapsulates the period in which we radically expanded the amount of land per capita available to those of Western descent, right? Yeah. Um, so like, you just have to consider that and you have to think about it. And I could be totally wrong, right? I mean, I like I'm I'm one voice in the wilderness saying a particular thing and I would also just highlight that the bearish case always sounds more intelligent, right? You know, we are genetically programmed to it's respond with more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if somebody says, Hey, there's a, there's fruit in that bush, you're like, Oh, that's nice. And if they say there's a lion in that bush, like assuming you're in a place where there's likely to be a lion, you're like, Holy, you know, you're like you immediately respond. Right. And so if I tell you that, you know, the end of Western civilization is nigh and that, you know, we're all going to be scrabbling out of existence in caves you know, you're, you're, you're kind of wired. You're like, Oh yeah, that matches the way how terrible things feel. But, you know, I also think that there are very positive outcomes. And so I, you know, I'm hopeful that the human ingenuity is able to create the innovations that lift us out of this. And I would, would highlight individuals like Jeff Bezos, you know, who are focused around space exploration. I'm not going to mention Elon Musk because I can't stand any aspect of that discussion. But, you know, I do think that that they are tapping into a cultural zeitgeist that recognizes we need to do something different, right? We need to actually do something different. And, you know, we're hopeful that that happens in time and that we're able to lower the cost of getting humans off this rock so that we can expand that land once again. But, you know, remember, if you got on a boat to travel to America in you know 1650 the odds were that you were gonna last about 10 years here right so like it was not you know this was not a good trip right there's a reason indentured servitude was typically nine years right because that 10th year was your expiration date so you know the cynicism has always been there in terms of the debt contracts right um but well, it's I, incredible you know I, i'm hopeful that, that, that we current, can do it what was the current standard of living but, that you would take that bet to hop on the boat Right. How 100 percent was it that you would do that? And then anyway, and I think a positive light that we can also well, just, uh, uh, bring uh, to this is the fact that nothing moves in a straight line. So everything moves in kind of a sine curve. So maybe we're in our continued upward drift, but maybe we're at the peak of that sign and uh, we're ebbing a little lower, but the positive drift still remains. I mean, Michael, do you, have you read the three body problem? Cause a lot of the ideas that you're bringing in towards the end of this conversation strikes me as uh, you're, you're a Kaishin Lu fan, or at least have been uh, delving into that space. The, the, the irony is, is that I actually have not read that, that book, but it's been referenced many, many times. Um, and I probably should add it to my repertoire, but um you know, it's uh, I, I cannot claim knowledge of that. Okay. Yeah, it's right. I'm on, leave off on the on the fact that I, I'm I'm pretty sure that you're being cagey about your reference to Elon Musk because you don't want to tip your hat on your on your huge call book on Tesla. So you know, we can just believe that. Believe that there. Understand you're trying to be cagey. I mean, you, you you guys have heard me talk about this. I think at the end of the day, that Elon and others. I mean, we could talk about SPACs. We can talk. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on that are other parties have figured out how to play this system. And, you know, if, if I'm going to give Elon credit for something, it's that he clearly figured out how to game a system that the rest of us are left scratching our heads. Right. And um, I mean, that was one of the subjects in my, my lunch yesterday with Marco Hodas and Bill Fleckenstein, this is the golden age of frauds. Right. I mean, 
what could be better for a fraud than a situation in which the single largest investors and by far the majority of flows, actually more than 100% of the flows, are flowing to an investment theme where the current price is the right price and there's no understanding or no knowledge of the fundamentals, right? Hey, that's, that's perfect for frauds. And to your point earlier, if you want to really make yourself too big to fail, you start uh, supplying NASA, right? You start supplying Exactly. NASA. That's exactly <laughs> correct. I mean, I, so again, I think he has cracked the algorithm that we're all asking about Right. And, and I'll take it even a step further. Right. I mean, he doesn't actually have to sell a share because we now live in an environment in which he can borrow against his shares. He can take that securitized against those shares. And if they ever fall, he just points to the evil investment Wall Street bankers who forced him to sell his shares. Right. It wasn't his fault. Yep. Right? Oh, it's so. a positive upward spiral. This is my favorite part of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I gotta remember next time we get Mike on with a uh, with one full drink in him first. Yeah. All right. <laughs> There's a reason I'm not often invited to cocktail parties, guys. So uh, well, you're, you're gonna be the most popular guy at our cocktail parties. I guess. Oh. Like the best part of the conversation for sure. Yeah. The irony is you're the optimist in this group. Oh man, that's that, that's that's frightening. Um. Anyway. All right, guys. Well, listen. This is a real pleasure. It was. Yeah, Thank yeah, you it was so a lot much. of fun. Thank you for your time, Michael. All right. Take care. Here we can. Thanks, Enjoy guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.